This is the Preparedness Radio Network, preparing you for natural and man-made disasters, helpful tips on gardening and homesteading. Be prepared and remember, preparedness saves lives. This is the Preparedness Radio Network. to this week's The Prepper Pat Show, where your host, Tony Tangalus, will discuss self-reliance as a lifestyle choice and offer useful resources to help keep your family prepared for the challenges you could be facing. Okay, Preppers, we have an exciting show today. Our, my guests are Mark Sauer of ARCA, which is the Amateur Radio Council of Arizona, which is an association of 26 ham clubs statewide. And we have Craig Carnahan of RF Gear to Go, who's been a frequent uh, Prepper Fest Expo vendor. And we're going to be talking about ham. And these next two weeks are going to be an in-depth analysis in why ham radio is a critical, essential component of a Prepper's plan and how astonishingly inexpensive and easy it is to get started. Guys, welcome to the Prepper Patch. Thanks for having us. Yes. Well, you know, I I got my ham license about a year ago. And, uh, you know, back in the old days, it was really a a pain to get the test. But I guess before we get into that, let's let's share with our listeners why it's so important for ham radio uh, as a Prepper communication solution. I understand, you know, years ago before cell phones, there were a lot more hams. But it seems like as the cell phone ubiquity started sprouting up, people are like, ah, I don't need a ham radio. You know, I can just, I can just, I can call somebody. I just use my cell phone. If, if I'm in a bad spot, I use my cell phone. But uh, one of the key things about ham is that in a grid-down situation, when power's out, like in Katrina and Sandy, the ham radios still work. Um, so share, share with our listeners some of that. Yeah, and really and some of that has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of our um, a lot of our ham radio operators uh, kind of got the bug back uh, after World War II coming back from that, and so we have a lot of older operators, and you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the younger kids don't have uh, that spark to to want to figure out why something works, and I think that's that's one of the keys that. We like about the uh, prepper um, movement is that people are interested in it for uh, the reasons beyond learning how the things work and how stuff operates. Um, and that's where we got kind of into interested in the prepper movement because these people are interested in emergency communications for either for talking to other groups, um, for talking to their own members, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And that's uh, Yeah, it, it, it's great. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I used to grow up, I, was, I would tinker with everything. Anything electronic, mm-hmm. yep. I'd take it apart, I'd break half the stuff. But after a while, I'd figure out how to fix it, put it back together again. But it seems young kids today, they like technology, but they, it's more of an entitlement mentality. They want the technology to play with it. There's not really that curiosity. And, of course, taking apart a cell phone, there's not a lot you can see in there. Back in the old days, it was, you know, tubes and big transistors and diodes and yeah, resistors. Yeah, resistors were the size of your yeah. fi- little finger. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, it was easier yeah. to work on. And, yeah. and that's that's part of it. Um, you know, the ham radio movement is, is slowly moving towards um, more of a usage thing, too. I mean, a lot of times the, the parts and the equipment are kind of hard to work with, especially for guys like us that have been around for a while. we got big, fat fingers and, yeah. and, you know, with surface mount things. So so back when I got started, which was um, I was first licensed in 1969, so I've beat Craig by a few years here. Just a couple. Just a couple. Uh, it was tubes. Transistors were just getting started. And uh, so, you know, you had tubes. You had uh, big power supplies, a lot of military surplus equipment. 
And that's uh, how I kind of got that. And it's evolved into a career for me. I've, I've become an electromechanical packaging guy, mainly doing design and print circuit boards. But that was where my spark got. I, I love taking things apart. I love repairing things, but I like even more building things. And that's how I got into yeah, this it, aspect of it's it. It's historically been a hobbyist thing, and it's kind of shifting now into the... You know, some of the hobbyists, I mean, the whole hobby thing is gone. I mean, when I was a kid, you'd go into the hobby stores, and they'd have model airplanes you could build. Oh, yeah. Stuff yeah. you could paint. And, you know, there's the hobby stores. I mean, other than Hobby Lobby, they just seem to be disappearing everywhere I go, you know. And, and the, the idea of the whole hobbyist thing is, you know, most kids in my neighborhood growing up, they were on the hobbies, whether it was model rockets or building, you know, model airplanes or doing something. Hmm. And and now it's just, you know, kids are into Nintendo and Xbox and Sony PlayStation and talking on their cell phone and texting each other. And not really, you know, getting their hands through with hobby. But let's share with our listeners some of the one of the, the key takeaway about ham radio is how valuable it is for a communications tool in a grid down scenario. So kind of to share with our listeners some of the value it played in Katrina and Sandy, some of the other markets where where there was gr- the grid was down. Well, sure, that and that's uh, you know I, I don't know how many of our listeners have uh, you know turned on the news and there's an earthquake someplace or there's a, there's a tsunami or someplace like that. And what do you usually hear from the newscasters? Well, ham radio guys on the island of such and such are reporting the widespread damage. And you go to Granada a number of years ago when we invaded Granada. The only news out of there for quite a while was ham radio operators. That's the only news that the news organization could get out of there. Why is that? Well, the grids were down. They were shutting things off. They didn't want people to, to know what was going on. And in an emergency situation, it's the same kind of thing. You have widespread damage. You have grid down. You have your cell phones no longer work because they're operating on AC power. You know, I tell people... Uh, Especially at the uh, Prepper Fest, I, they said, well, I have my cell phone. I can talk to anybody I want to. And I said, no, you can't <laughs> when the grid's down or your, you know, your cell phone is, or your cell phone uh, cell tower is under four feet of water. Yeah. It's not going to work. So I say, Here, here's, here's a, an alternate situation where you could actually get on the air and talk to somebody to get help. And it's not just a, a, a boundary within the United States to be able to talk to people. You can talk all over the world. And somebody is going to be able to help. It, most disasters that we've gone through in our lives have been regional. You know, uh, uh, Haiti is a good example of that. Well, it didn't affect too many people here in the United States, but a lot of that relief effort was coordinated through ham radio operators here in the States and around the world. So you got to look at the, what disaster you're looking at. Is it regional or is it widespread? Yeah, and, and the ability to communicate with a ham radio is not dependent on much technology. I mean, you can, uh, my, you know, I, and I, you guys are the experts. I'm mm. just getting in this thing. But, you know, as we were talking before, we went in the air. You can bounce the signals right off the ionosphere and 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 do other things to communicate. Right. Where even if the repeaters are down, you can still use your ham to communicate. And is is it true that the the it's really difficult to stop a ham from being able to use. I mean, if, if for instance, government tried to use harp or some other technology to stop ham radios, can they really do that? Or is it, it pretty much if you have a ham and it works and it's survived an EMP because it's been in a Faraday cage, and is it mm-hmm. is, can you pretty much count on your ability to get that communication out? Sure, and that's and that's probably the the main purpose is not so much in getting the license, but it's the training you get afterwards to learn how to use that radio and how to know about how things work, like we talked about the ionosphere with propagation. Propagation is a relationship between solar activity, the different layers, the ionosphere, the ground, and the frequencies that you are operating on. 
And by knowing some of those techniques and tricks, you know there's a certain band of frequencies. And by the way, there's 16 bands that the amateurs are, can use. They're, they're fairly popular. Um, anywhere from um, just right above the broadcast band to right below some of the FM broadcast station stuff. So we have a wide variety of bands, and they, they have certain characteristics that makes ham radio um, unique in that we can usually pretty well guarantee we're going to talk to some part of the world, provided that you know th- we don't have a solar flare or something that would really disrupt that kind of communication. Yeah, and, and in Hurricane Katrina and Sandy, I heard report after report on the hams were the only people that were really providing that communication. Yeah, right? and that and I've I've got a good friend that uh, was actually volunteered there, and he went to uh, to New Orleans to help with that. And some of the horror stories he was saying was just just phenomenal. And and Katrina was kind of an example of how everything can go bad. You had absolute failure of of the dikes to hold the water in. You know, New Orleans is 14 feet below sea level. So if you have a dike break, guess what? You're going to get flooded out. I mean, sorry, guys, that's just the way it happens. And surprisingly, people were not prepared for that as much. And then you have the thing of, well, you have all these cell towers. Well, you know, a cell tower has these antennas up 300 feet in the air. It's great. But your main control box is down the ground. So if you've got 14 feet of water, and this is brackish, salt, crappy water, guess what? You're not going to have cell phones. So the whole infrastructure, the grid, grid was down, everything. And then added on top of that, Basically, uh, uh, the incompetence of the government, both in all three of the state, local, and federal governments, couldn't communicate, couldn't agree on anything, so it became this real quagmire of trying to get help to these people. Well, amateur radio helped with that because people were set up. People were brought in from other areas. They knew how to set up communications and, and do that. And I got, if we got a little time here, I got just a real quick blurb here. I thought it was really interesting, and I picked yeah, this off. Yeah, the we have about one minute before it breaks. Okay. Ahead. I want to read this. This was off of, I think this was off Wikipedia. Volunteers from Amateur Radio Service Wing, the Amateur Radio Emergency Service, provided communication areas where the infrastructure uh, had been damaged or totally destroyed, relaying everything from 911 traffic to messages home. In Hancock County, Mississippi, ham radio operators provided the only communication into out of the air and even served as 911 dispatchers. That's very unusual because hams are usually set up to do health and welfare, which is kind of like the backdoor part of, of helping amateur or helping the community with communications and stuff. Well, Mark, we're coming up on our first break, and Craig, we're going to bring you back in. When we come back, so we've, we've shared with you why ham's important. When we come back, we're going to start giving you nuts and bolts, where to start getting started with classes, testing, and how to get started being in ham. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Prepper Patch. You're listening to the Preparedness Radio Network. We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Everyone knows that the fresher the food, the better. Better for health, nutrition, and, of course, taste. This is especially true with grains and flours that can become rancid so quickly. That's why it's important to have a quality grain mill for use today and in your preparations. The Wonder Mill Company is the only American company to produce an electric mill as well as a manual mill, and they're made with the highest quality materials and workmanship. They create the finest flours, whether from whole grains, gluten-free grains, beans, and even more. The Wonder Mill Electric Mills and the Wonder Junior Deluxe Manual Grain Mills are the highest rated grain mills for good reason. They work and they're built to last. Visit the Wonder Mill website to check out their videos, reviews, recipes, and to find a dealer near you today. That's thewondermill.com. 
want to reduce your dependence on the electrical grid, trying to save money on groceries, preparing for a major power outage, we can help. Layman's is your source for everything you need for heat, food, light, and water when there is no power. Glenda Layman Irvin here for Layman's in Kidron, Ohio. My father, Jay Lehman, founded our store in 1955 to serve the local Amish with non-electric appliances, tools, and houseware items. Today, through our website, laymans.com, a print catalog, and a retail store, we provide oil lamps, water pumps, wood stoves, canning supplies, and hand tools to customers all over the world. If you think it isn't made anymore, check with Lehman's before you give up. Visit laymans.com or call us at one 8 774385346 for a free catalog or just stop by. We're located about an hour south of Cleveland. Thanks for listening to a word from our sponsors. Now, back to the show on the Preparedness Radio Network. Welcome back to the Prepper Patch with your host, Tony Tangalos. Today, Tony is discussing some of the specific steps that you can take to become increasingly self-reliant and embrace the preparedness lifestyle. Okay, preppers, this is the first of a two-week session on ham radio. We have Mark Kiesauer and Craig Carnahan in the studio with me today, and we're introducing the concept of why preppers need to be involved with ham. And briefly, if you just joined us, we covered about how ham is critical because it can give you the ability to communicate no matter what, even in a grid-down situation. The power's out. You can still use your ham to communicate both locally and even around the world. So at the first, we, we covered that in our first session. Let's talk, now let's get into the nuts and bolts. Mark, can you share with us the three different, uh, who regulates ham licenses? Of course, you need a license to use these things legally. Of course. I know a lot of preppers are like, uh, you know, legal schmiegel. I'm just, you know, when the skills hit the fan, I'm not going to worry about it. But it's a good idea to have a license. And, of course, you can listen without a license. You just can't talk without a license. Well, yeah, that's true. And as I've told some people at, at the last Prepper Fest that we attended, um, you don't prepare for a disaster during a disaster. You right. prepare for the good times. And we're in a relatively good period of time. Our government may be a little dysfunctional, but, you know, you, you, it's, it's relatively a good time. So what you want to do if for getting a ham license is you want to focus on, on what is probably the, the best entry-level part of that, and that would be the technician class license. There are three classes. There's a technician, a general, and an extra and obviously, as you get up into the higher classes of licenses, they get progressively more difficult. What the FCC wants to ensure is that you know the basics of how to operate a radio and know that uh, when you are licensed that you can operate it effectively. Now, the cool thing about amateur radio these days is that the amateurs are basically self-regulating. We not only test ourselves, we also uh, monitor the bands for people that are intrusions or people that are operating illegally, and we report that back to the FCC. So it's one of the very few entities um, in in the governmental thing where uh, the people that are actually using the service are actually maintaining it and actually being self-policed. So when you go to a test exam, uh, you will be tested by volunteer amateur radio operators, and they are called volunteer examiner coordinators. I am one. My wife is one. Uh, we've been that for years. There are a number of, of groups that will do that. So let's talk about um, what do you got to do for, for an exam. Well, the best thing I can say to do is, is look at the technician class license. It's a good entry level. It gives you uh, lots of um, 
lots of control over your rig and gives you basically every privilege above uh, 30 megahertz, which is uh, right above the CB band for those of you that are interested or know about what CB is. You are allowed to, uh, excuse me, operate a repeater. You are allowed to fix stuff. You can talk to satellites. Uh, it's quite a wide-ranging thing. You are kind of limited, though, in talking on HF, which people consider to be the long-distance part of communications. You are allowed voice on a certain section of 10 meters, which is very popular and a very good band. If you want to talk all over the world, 10 meters is the band to do it. Uh, there is some activity up on 6 meters, for uh, which is 50 megahertz, which is a good worldwide communication when the sunspots and the ionosphere and the propagation, which we talked about before, is set up. And you also have some uh, band privileges for using uh, CW or Morse code uh, down on some of the uh, lower bands like 40 meters so and 80 meters. So there's um, it gives you kind of a good taste. Uh, you, like, you can get an HT and you can talk to other hams. You can go through repeaters. There basically isn't any place in Arizona that you can't talk to um, you know, while going through a repeater. So I can sit out in my backyard and talk through a repeater to people down in Tucson. I can talk to people up in Flagstaff. Uh, there's a lot of repeaters that are linked. So it's not as though you're just going to be talking kind of line of sight to your buddy across town. You're going to have a lot of uh, interaction with a lot of different hams throughout the state. And I understand in the old days you had to take, you had to learn and memorize the Morse code, and that was part of becoming a ham. But they, how many years ago did they strip that out? That was quite a while ago. Yeah, that it? was quite a while ago. The um, when I first got licensed in 1969, um, I was fortunate that I studied what a class called the novice test then, which was basically just CW. You couldn't you couldn't operate voice, and um, that was usually given by another ham. If you wanted to go and get a more advanced license, and at that time there were five, you had a novice, you had a, a technician, you had a, a general, advanced, and an extra, you had to actually go to a FCC field office and take the test. Very intimidating. Uh, you know, you're talking to the, to the FCC examiners, and, uh, you know, it wasn't a very relaxed atmosphere. Plus, sometimes you had to travel long distance to do it. When I learned five words a minute, it wasn't that bad. It was actually pretty easy to learn. Uh, Thirteen, which was the next step, if you want to go to general, uh, was pretty intimidating. And, and surprisingly, it was, it was kind of ironic because my wife and I were studying for our 20 to do the extra. And we were down to where we were communicating with each other in the car back and forth to work. And we heard the announcement that they dropped the Morse code requirement. <laughs> it's like somebody just, you know, just deflated your balloon that, oh, all this work, and now you're just going to throw it away. But, uh, no, it's good. And, and a lot of that code, uh, all the code requirements were basically years and years of making sure that, that uh, we could talk to the maritime community. Ships at sea were using Morse code for years. Then, then the satellites kind of took over, and, and that kind of displaced that. And the FCC, in agreement with some of the national organizations, said, yeah, Morse code really isn't, really isn't needed. You know, it's, it's, it's a fun part of the hobby. It's an aspect that a lot of people still use, and, it is one of the few modes that gets through when nothing else can. So it's an important part of our of our hobby. But um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it was interesting back in the early days, and it's progressively gotten easier. And and now it's it's fairly easy to take a test. Okay. And I, w- I want to talk about how easy it is to take a test. And we were talking about this at the last break. Um, you know, there are sites all over on iPads. There's apps you can download on uh, Android or, or iPad. Uh, there's websites you can go to and just search. Basically, you just Google like ham tests, basically. Yeah, and, and, and let, me, uh, let me give you some little information on some of the tests. We, every, the, the volunteer examiners and their parent organization, 
um, come up with a question pool. And a question pool is basically, um, well, let's, let's take the example of the tech test, which is the entry level. When you go take the exam, it's called um, Level 1, Element 2. It's going to be 35 questions. And those 35 questions are going to be basically come out of a pool of 350. The rules are that we have to have at least, we have to test you out of a pool of at least 10 times the number of questions that we ask on the test. So you're going to have um, you, you're going to have to study and, and understand some of the basics of ham radio. But I tell people, listen, go through the book or go through the CD or, or whatever you're however you're doing it. Go through and read the, the manual on how to, to become a ham radio operator at this particular level. Go back at the end when you're done and start playing around with the questions. You, you don't really want to memorize everything because you don't know what the questions are going to, how they're going to be presented to you. The questions and the answers have to be what's in the question pool. They don't necessarily need to be in order. Right, right, right. So, you know, on question, on your exam, there may be question A, maybe a question, you know, maybe, uh, right. D, you know, for, right. for all that could be. Yeah. But, you know, for, for me, I mean, I, I studied for about five hours before I took my test. I just went to the test site, studied the questions. There's a huge distinction in my mind between studying to pass the test and taking classes that actually teach you how to use use the ham radio and that's that's one of the values of of ARCA the Amateur Radio Council of Arizona is uh, what I'm trying to explain to our listeners here is is getting passing the test to enable you to legally use your ham is really easy now knowing how to use your ham radio and really understanding the intricacies that can be a lifelong that process that can be a lifelong process uh, i've been and, in ham radio for 45 years yeah. there are things i have no idea yeah, about there's, it's always a yeah. learning experience yeah. for all this and i'm into some pretty pretty interesting and pretty exotic stuff but yeah that's that's true and and it depends on what the listener how they feel comfortable about it um, i know some people can pick up a book read through it pass the test no problem i know some people would prefer more of a classroom type of environment where they can go to a class and they can have an instructor tell them. And in some cases it may be easier because there are certain uh, aspects of it they may not understand where an instructor may be able to, to help them solve that issue yeah. or explain it to them. So we're going to share some of the places. So there's, there's studying for the test resources, which would be basically Google ham test questions or go to your iPad store, your iPad app store, uh, is there an Android app store? So go to those I'm stores. Sure. And, and, and Craig, most of these are free, right? These, these apps? Uh. A, a lot of them are. Um, and Mark is correct that there's a variety of different ways of studying to pass your test. I mean, if you're lucky enough to live next to, uh, or down the street from what we refer to as an Elmer, um, the guy or, or gal for that matter who's already in the ham radio, you can study from them. Uh, you can take a class at, for example, the Arizona Science Center that they teach quite often. Uh, you can go to various clubs, and that's where uh, accessing you know, ARCA is a good thing to, to know because uh, there may be a club, say, for example, in Sun City West, if you live out there, that you wouldn't want to drive all the way to Tucson to take their you know, test. Uh, what we found is we're, we're using a program called HamTest Online. Um, we like it a lot because it, for a lot of folks, they just can't, you know, have the time to devote hours and hours a week, you know, for multiple weeks mm -hmm. to go somewhere. And yeah. in addition to the, you know, half an hour there, half an hour back kind of thing, it's a self-paced class. Uh, it normally sells for 25 We do it for 22.50. Okay, well, we're coming up on our second break. We're going to get back to that ham class and some of the other things. And uh, when you come back, we're going to actually share more information on where to take classes and testing and how to network to find a ham radio club in your neighborhood. You're listening to the Preparedness Radio Network. 
We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Making the Best of Basics Family Preparedness Handbook by James Talmud Stevens. He's been a part of the preparedness community, sharing information since the beginning. That's why he's known as Dr. Prepper. Making the Best of Basics has been the all-time best-selling volume in the preparedness industry for almost four decades, updated and revised to provide the most relevant information available. You can choose the new CD-ROM version that's jam-packed full of special features. Or, for instant access to all the information, you can purchase the digital download version and have every how-to, every article, every recipe, and every resource available immediately. No wait and no freight. Visit www.makingthebestofbasics.com today and get your hands on this essential preparedness resource. While you're there, take the free Family Preparedness Self-Assessment Test. Be sure to stop by makingthebestofbasics.com for the CD-ROM, digital download, or print book, or all three. Making the Best of Basics. If you're going to buy just one resource to help you maximize your preparedness, this is the one. Making the Best of Basics. thought the award-winning Hoodswoods video series was cool, wait till you see this. From Karen Hood of Survival.com and Hoodswoods Video Productions comes Survival Quarterly Magazine. With some of the best names in the industry like Ted Nugent, Michael Hawk, Dave Williams, and of course Karen Hood, along with too many more to list, Survival Quarterly Magazine puts survival in the palm of your hand. Just visit SurvivalQ.com for current and back issues. And don't forget to keep up with all things Survival Quarterly at Facebook.com slash Survival Quarterly. Thanks for listening to a word from our sponsor. Now, back to the show on the Preparedness Radio Network. Welcome back to the Prepper Patch with your host, Tony Tangalos. Today, Tony is discussing some of the specific steps that you can take to become increasingly self-reliant and embrace the preparedness lifestyle. Okay, Preppers, we're, we're here with Craig Carnahan and Mark Kisar of the Arizona, I'm sorry, the Amateur Radio Council of Arizona, which is a club and association of 26 ham clubs statewide, and we're, t- we're talking about ham radio. So we're going to break. We were talking about the distinction between studying for, to pass the test, which is one part of what you want to do. But you also want to get some real knowledge of how to use your ham, which, as Craig mentioned, you can find someone in your neighborhood that knows, which, and they can train you. Uh, we also have a course coming up here starting February 22nd through March 29th. It's being taught down at the uh, Arizona Science Center. This is where I took my course. It's being taught by a guy named Bob Burleson, who's just legendary for teaching these classes. These guys all teach these classes for free. Uh, I think there's a what a $25 fee and to take the class. Something yeah, I like think that. it's just to buy the book or the course yeah. materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, actually yeah. And then uh, so if you're interested, uh, the le- last email I got from Bob said there's only about five spaces left in this class. They limit it to about 20 class sizes. So if you want to take the class starting February 22nd. Uh, email Bob at KG7QJ. That's Kangaroo Golf, the number seven, Queen Juliet at Cox.net. And, uh, if you're one of the first five people to get in there, and then if, if it's, if this class fills up, he'll let you know about some other classes coming up. And some of the other resources for learning about classes, we want to definitely mention the ARCA website, the, uh, Amateur Radio Council of Arizona's website is ARCA hyphen az.org 
They have a tab there. Uh, Mark, if you want to uh, take it from there. Yeah, we have a – if you go over to our website, on the uh, left-hand side, you'll see a thing that says Arizona Classes. We also have a thing about uh, uh, licensing and testing, uh, VEC exams, which is Volunteer Examiner Coordinator. And I want to bring a couple points here real quick. Um, when you go to one of these exam sessions – uh, the FCC license is free. There is no charge to get a ham license. However, the volunteer examiners will charge you a fee, and I think it's around $15 to pay for their uh, postage and their, their work that they have to do, gas, and to get there and, and the stuff they have to print up. But those will give you those are two good resources. And our website for the uh, testing actually links you to the national organization, which is the uh, American Radio Relay League out of uh, Connecticut. That's the National Organization for Ham Radio. And they have an extensive list of uh, resources for that. So if you really want to get into ham radio, that's a great place to start. It's just yeah. chock full of information. Yeah, and, and you can go there through ARCA, which, again, the ARCA website is arca-az.org. You can also go straight to the uh, Relay League website, which is arrl.org. And there you can find out about test locations, uh, they have a lot of lists there. I went there just online this morning where you can go to the licensing tab and go to the education and training and scroll down to resources, and there's a button there you can hit for find an exam session. Presently, they have sessions uh, coming up at least every month uh, all over the state, right? Yeah, pretty much every every month every every month there is at least one test session somewhere. I think uh, the hotter days of the month, they kind of say, no, we're not going to do any testing. Uh, July, we have, of course, our big ham fest up in Williams, which will have testing, but there isn't a whole lot of testing down here because people, eh, it's just hot. You know, everybody yeah. wants to not get out yeah. and run around. Well, I'm, I might add that I tested for my extra uh, two years ago at the City of Mesa site, and they mm-hmm. actually test there twice a month all during the summer. Oh, so, cool. you know, if, you, if you're local here in the Valley and you don't mind the drive to Mesa, there you go. There's a resource. All right, so we shared with you, why you should get a ham, where to take the tests, questions to pass the test, where to take the test, and where to take courses to actually study to learn how to operate your ham. Um, let's talk a lot about the ARCA website and how, what ARCA's purpose is. Uh, uh, share with our listeners that, Mark. Okay, the Amateur Radio Council of Arizona is basically an association of, of Arizona clubs. Uh, what we do is we offer assistance to all the clubs in the state. We have clubs that are very big. They have thousands of members. We have clubs that are very small that may only have a few. That disparity in, in the number of clubs makes resources kind of difficult. We try to help uh, some of these clubs with uh, putting up repeaters. Let's say they have they live in a small town somewhere in Arizona. They want to put up a repeater. We can help them with that if they're, let's say, putting on a ham fest. A ham fest is basically a swap meet for ham radio operators uh, where they can buy and sell trade equipment, that kind of thing. Um, we help them with that advertising. We also run our own ham fest. We have two that we, we help run every year. Uh, we have a ham fest coming up in, in March 15th over in Scottsdale. We help run one over in, at DeVry in April. And then we have our big one we do up in, in Williams every year. And those are great places for resources for getting information and for learning things of, of ham radio in general. And when they, when they uh, go to, like I've been to Bob's Club, I think it's in Scottsdale there over on like McKellops and 76th Street mm-hmm. area. Um, there's, you know, 30, 40 people in the room there. Most of these guys are really experienced hams. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And a lot of times if you come in there with a you know, a newbie attitude and, and, hu- and humble and willingness to learn, the, they'll take you under their wing. You'll find someone in the room that will that'll help you out, and they'll, they'll, they'll teach you a lot of the things about ham. Sure, yeah. and, that, and that's part of the thing that uh, is unique about ham radio is that because it's all volunteer, people really like to help other hams out. 
yeah, we have a few idiots out there who, you know, they want to stay in their radio room and do their thing. But the most hams are, in general, pretty pretty giving of their time. I, I might add that when I lived in the Scottsdale area years ago, I, I was a member of the Scottsdale Amateur Radio Club, and one night out of the blue, unscheduled, um, a gentleman named Barry Goldwater walked in, who was also a member of the Scottsdale Amateur Radio Club, and immediately that meant that what was scheduled that night changed, and they asked <laughs> Barry to come up and just talk about stuff, and it was just fascinating to listen to him tell stories about you know, he, he worked a Mars station. He had one at his house, which was a, a military, you know, amateur radio type service. Uh, and they would literally make phone calls for the troops overseas, um, you know, way back in the, before the days of, you know, cell phones everywhere and Skype satellites everywhere and, and yeah. satellites and everything else. And, uh, Barry's station was known around the world. Yeah. He had a huge tower. I've seen his house. It was over there, uh, in Paradise Valley. Like in the 24th. Uh, yeah, 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 up on a, up on a hill yeah. there. Yeah. And I used to go by it a lot, uh, going to a friend of mine's house, and uh, he had this huge tower there, and he's legendary for being a big ham. So, yeah, he, he was. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a fraternity. And it's, it, it is. And for people that are interested in this and they don't know where to go, the ARCA website is where you go. You learn about where the ham clubs are in your neighborhood. You learn about where to take the testing. So it's just a great resource. It's, again, arca-az.org. And, that, and that's the good thing about about ARCA is that we can provide you a list of the clubs that may be near in your area. Also, a lot of, you have to remember, too, that a lot of clubs are specialized in a certain thing. We have clubs that are interested in a, in a thing called DX, which is distance. There are members of that club. Uh, the uh, Central Arizona DX Association is a member of us. They're interested in seeing how many people they can contact and the distances they can get. It's kind of like a club for see how far they can talk. We have clubs that are set up for uh, uh, learning how to um, build your own equipment. There are clubs out there that are um, school-based clubs. We have a brand-new member of, of our, our group that uh, is out of a preparatory academy over in uh, Scottsdale, and they're going to they're gonna start doing things like robotics and satellites and stuff like that. So they're... It's however, whatever thing interests you. You're interested in general club? There's plenty of general club interest out there. Absolutely. All right, well, we're coming up on our next break, but before we get in there, Craig, share with our listeners uh, the, the concept, without getting too technical, about the repeaters and how they would use a repeater and some of the things they can do through a repeater to uh, communicate around the world. Well, as simple as it sounds, the repeater is um, a machine that generally sits on a tall building or a mountaintop site, Many of them have all kinds of backup power capabilities, so if you are in a grid-down situation, that's one of the reasons why you can still stay up and okay. talk. Okay, all right, that's huge. Um, a lot of these repeaters are now linked. For example, Arizona is fortunate enough that we have mountains around us, and a lot of those mountains have repeaters that are linked to one another. There's a really large group in Arizona called the Arizona Repeater Association that, that has a, a set of repeaters linked that they call RimLink. Uh, so somebody that's sitting in Phoenix can talk to somebody up on Mount Org near Payson. They can also talk to somebody out in Greenspeak near Eager uh, in New Mexico. They can talk to somebody up in Flagstaff and so on. And they literally work around the state with a little handheld radio that you fit in the palm of your hand. But what's come up that's new now is um, the ability to tie the Internet into ham radio, and that's called IRLP, Internet Radio Linking Project. And what IRLP lets you do is you can take a little handheld radio that's 5 watts. If you know what you're doing, which means you're going to have to have at least your technician class license to know how to do this and how to access it, you can type in a four-digit code and literally talk to another repeater anywhere in the world. There's actually a 5-2 simplex link to Antarctica. So if you'd like to talk to the guys that are scientists 
in Antarctica, you can, and you can do it with a handheld radio and the you know that clips on your belt. That's under a hundred dollars, right? It's it's well under a hundred dollars. Yeah, now yeah. There, there's all kinds of different you know breaks and or models and, and units out there. So you know, I would say a starting point is somewhere around sixty to seventy dollars, and then from there you go up. And I think that's one of the reasons why ham radio has now become so popular of late. Is you've got seven hundred and seventeen thousand plus hams now, which the FCC says is the largest number of hams we've ever had. Really? really? And that's just in the yeah. U.S. There's like yeah. two and a half million worldwide. Okay. So you're right. It's it's one of the largest fraternities and or sororities out there. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. I mean, I hope our listeners are understanding how easy it is to pass the test, how easy it is to get started, how inexpensive it is to get started, and how valuable it is to use these ham radios to talk all over in the valley, the state, the country, even in, in even the world. When we come back, we're going to finish up with Mark and Craig talking more about this. We're going to talk about the ham the Ham Radio Pavilion we're going to have at Prepper Fest Expo. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Prepper Patch. You're listening to the Preparedness Radio Network. We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Do you have your free digital subscription to Prepare Magazine yet? If not, then hurry over to preparemag.com and start getting each monthly issue sent directly to your inbox. It's easy. All you have to do is go to preparemag.com, enter your name and email address, and you're subscribed. Consider signing up for the premium membership for past issues and exclusive resources. You can even subscribe to the beautiful print version of Prepare Magazine. Visit preparemag.com and choose the option that's most valuable to you. Prepare Magazine, encouraging, empowering, and enriching your journey. Looking to get the real boil for your buck? The Kelly Kettle may be the most versatile and valuable piece of camping or emergency preparedness equipment that you can own. By quickly and easily starting a fire, protect it from both the wind and the rain, boil water and cook food at the same time, Kelly Kettle provides the ability to stay warm on a cold night, stay fed with hot food, stay hydrated, stay clean, and stay alive. All with a portable kettle that fires up with just a few pieces of natural fuel, like a pine cone, dry twigs, or bark. The Kelly Kettle is a highly efficient, portable, double-walled water kettle and cook stove. It will quickly become your favorite accessory when it comes to camping, fishing, backpacking, and emergency preparedness. You don't want to be without a Kelly Kettle. Check out the different Kelly Kettle models and accessories today at kellykettleusa.com. That's kellykettleusa.com. Imagine a food garden that you only have to plant once in your lifetime that takes up very little space that will provide food for you and your family for the next 30 years that can grow five times more food per square foot than traditional gardening and where you never have to weed, never have to use fertilizers, and never have to use pesticide ever. And the whole garden's disguised to look like overgrown underbrush so no one would know you have food growing there. Interested? That's what the book Secret Gardener Survival, How to Grow a Camouflage Food Forest is all about. It's the essential prepper food source that can provide you with all the fruit, vegetables, nuts, and berries that you and your family can consume in a year. Find out how Rick Austin took a half-acre southern slope of North Carolina and turned it from red clay into a food forest in just one year. Go to secretgardensurvival.com and learn how you can do this, too. The book is available in paperback and Kindle versions at Amazon.com. The Nook version is also available at barnesandnoble.com. Thanks for listening to a word from our sponsors. Now, back to the show on the Preparedness Radio Network. 
Welcome back to the Prepper Patch on Independent Talk 1100 KFNX with your host, Tony Tangalos. Today, Tony is discussing some of the specific steps that you can take to become increasingly self-reliant and embrace the preparedness lifestyle. Okay, Preppers, I have Mark Keesauer of the Amateur Radio Council of Arizona and Craig Carnahan of RF Gear to Go in the studio today. And we're spending the next two weeks talking about ham radio and why it's a critical prepper tool for communications. Uh, Craig, when we were going to break, you were mentioning, you were getting started mentioning about how now there's this IRLP, which allows hams to use the Internet to actually send signals all over the world. Can, is there anything that we missed that you want to share on that? Well, there's, an, there's a couple of different modes out there that are available. IRP, IRLP is just one. There's also a, a very popular method called Echolink. Uh, and to another extent, on the digital side, uh, ICOM, a, a Japanese manufacturer, is promoting a standard called D-Star. Uh, any one of those allows you to have a radio in the Phoenix metro area and, and as a technician class license, the beginner class license, be able to talk to people all over the world. So, you know, you can stand there with your little radio in your hand and be at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and talk to anybody you want to talk to in Michigan or, you know, the North Pole practically. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really matter where you are anymore. And that's one of the, I think, biggest reasons why ham radio now is taking off because people before would say, well, you know, I, I'd like to talk. I don't want to use CW, and I'd like to talk to somebody, you know, a thousand miles away, not just a few hundred, and now this lets them do that. And that's the fun part about our hobby is now it's opened up to a lot of different people with the new technologies and things. Exactly that, right. Yeah. So I have a question, and this, this is, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur in the ham radio thing. I have barely used mine. I have my license, so when I need to use it, I'm, I'm street legal, and, and I am going to get training one of these days. But is the, is the concept of repeaters and hams similar to the concept of cell towers with cell phones in the sense that you're communicating similar. to one locally and then it's it's repeating that to other towers? Well, similar, but I, I guess what I'd say is, for example, if you have a local cell tower that goes down, you your cell coverage to your... Um, you know, provider you're is done. down. You're, done. you're down. Yeah, you're okay? done. Yeah. Um, and in ham radio, uh, let's say, for example, something tragic were to happen in the Phoenix-based area tomorrow. Um, I can access repeaters in Tucson from here mm-hmm. because they're up on Mount Lemmon, you know, which is almost 9,000 feet high. Um, so the ability of ham radios to have Backup to backup to backup to backup is what makes it so unique. And that's why, you know, when somebody calls for somebody to come to the scene of a disaster, you know, be it Katrina or, or Sandy or anything like that, they're generally calling hams because these are people that, you know, twice a year will go out on different events and set up in the middle of a field with no, you know, power at all and set up antennas and string wires and trees and so on. And then within, you know, minutes sometimes be able to talk around the world. They practice that. Yeah, and that's and that also what's very important is the equipment is really good for emergency communications. We're talking about a lot of the HF rigs, a lot of the uh, small mobile handhelds run on 12 volts. So yeah. now you have a a, a well known power source, uh, car battery, um, a gel cell battery, uh, deep cycle. So a lot, so you can be on the air in just a few minutes. Uh, even if your grid's down and you have no access to the internet, you have no access to your cell phone. And you're in the dark, so you still have that. And a lot of the hams are, are really good at emergency communication and having getting set up because they know about this stuff. I've got a generator. I've got a bug-out box, which is a Faraday shield for some of my equipment. I'm kind of ready to go. Am I where I like to be? No, because that's because I'm family and everything else going on. 
But for most hams, they can pretty much assemble the station in just a few minutes. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about cost. Now, next week's show, we're going to get more into the details with Craig on the different options that are out there and, and pricing and whatnot. But from, from an overview standpoint for our listeners today, uh, the cost of buying a ham radio has, has gone way down from where right. it was in the past. And right? I think that's kind of an analog to what the cell phone prices have. You bought yeah, a yeah. cell phone 20 years yeah. ago, it had been $300. Yeah. Now they're giving them away uh, at, the, at the store. They were 3600 when they first came yeah, out. The old, the old Motorola 8000 brick, man. Yeah, I, I was exactly. selling them. I was in the business. 30, yeah. I yeah. had doctors paying 3600 bucks for these things, and it was $2 a minute to call on them. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It was like the, the, the satellite phones they are now. But, so uh, yeah, so the, so the technology has actually helped ham radio, and that now it's gotten to be very inexpensive to build these things. So that's kind of reflected in some of the newer newer equipment that is out there and the pricing that is there. So yeah, for like Craig said, for a hundred bucks you can you can easily get into yeah, ham radio. For a hundred bucks in in you know half a day testing, uh, studying and testing, you're in the ham legally. Obviously, you want to go to a club, go to the ARCA website, which is arca az. Dot org mm-hmm. and find a club in your area. You don't want to just out, be out there like a like a renegade uh, talking on the talking on the airwaves until you know what the heck you're doing. Well, that's, that's you'll, a, you'll get shut down. You got You oh, got to yeah. learn what you're doing, and we, we definitely want to hit on that before we close the show here. It's cheap and easy to get a ham radio. It's cheap to pass the test, but you need to spend some time uh, hanging out at a club and getting to know some people that really know what yeah, they're doing. Yeah, it's, it's just like if you got your driver's license, that doesn't mean that you're going to yeah. be qualified to go out and race Daytona. Right, right. You know, right. you, right. you need somebody to help you learn what you need to learn. Training is important, and that's what I tell people. It's not getting the ham license that's the important part. It is learning how to operate, learning what you have to do, the etiquette, the band edges, all the information. That has to be learned through either on the air or with hopefully somebody else. And we had an incident at, at the last Pepper Fest where a guy walked up and he said, well, you know, the, the doomsday scenario thing, well, if everything's down, government's down, the, the grid's down, um, I can just pick up a radio and start talking. And I said, yes, that's absolutely true. There's nothing going to stop you at that point. But I pointed him into the room and I said, you see the radio sitting there on the, on the table? Do you know what all those knobs and buttons do? He said, no. I said, do you know what kind of antennas we have up on the roof to be able to talk to distances that we're showing people today? Well, no, I don't yeah. know anything about that. All right, that's what you got to learn. Yeah. That's the important part. I mean, we have we coined the term pirate preppers to refer to people that don't prep, that are then you go around stealing stuff from people that do. And I, I guess we need to come up with a term for, for pirate ham radio guys that think they can just pick up a radio uh, you know, we don't need no stinking license. You yeah, know, the Mexican to, taxis. Yeah. Is one, but, yeah, yeah. Well, not only that, but most of these repeaters that we've been talking about for a while are PL encoded, which means that not only does the machine on the mountain sit there and listen for the right frequency to come in on it, it also has to have the right PL tone. And if it doesn't, it doesn't turn on the repeater. It doesn't repeat your, your message. And for a lot of folks that don't understand that because they haven't learned anything, they think it's just like a scanner. You plug in a frequency and it somehow magically works. They don't understand the offsets. They don't understand PL tones or DCS or anything else that's out there that might be required to access that repeater. So, you know, if they're thinking that they're going to wait until the disaster strikes and grab somebody's radio and start talking, they might be in for a really rude awakening. And if someone were obnoxious, they they would be getting a lot of chatter from the the, the pro the you know the the real ham saying, hey buddy, shut up, get off the well, waves, one, one and all of the, that. And one of the tenants of the FCC says you have to monitor the repeater. 
If yes. you own a repeater, so yeah. you have to have, be able to shut that off remotely yeah. Yeah. or monitor it, which yeah. means you're on there swearing and you're yeah. you're telling them that you don't like this guy or that guy, just the general idiot out there. Yeah. They will shut you down. Yeah, they'll shut you down. Yeah, yeah. and and people will start, well, people will shift to another frequency, mm-hmm. so you'll be talking years and nobody will be listening to you. Well, we only have about a minute or two left. Let's talk a little bit about Prepper Fest Expo coming up March 21st, 22nd, 23rd at the Arizona State Fairgrounds. Of course, Mark and Craig, I want to thank you guys along with uh, some of our executive committee members for putting on the, the first ham radio pavilion or the last that expo. That was a lot of fun. We, which, enjoyed, yeah. we enjoyed that. That was yeah. really a lot of fun for us. And so tell, us, tell our listeners what we're going to have there, what we're going to be demonstrating. And, and we, we have another in glass-enclosed place. Actually, you're going to be in a meat locker. Okay. Uh, we're at the Arizona State <laughs> Fairgrounds. Well, to keep it's, the equipment cool. It's, yeah, it's called the yeah. cattle corral or something like that. Yeah. Well, we won't have the, we won't have it on like 30 degrees, but but uh, it's actually it's it, what it's nice about it is it's a it's about a 40 foot long room that's glass displayed to the expo floor, but it has a separate entrance. So you will be in your get smart cone of silence. That'll here be as far that'll as be great. It'll, it'll be like the uh, the hobby train thing at the at the at the state fair that we yeah. see every year. Yeah. No, this will be fun. We're we're planning on expanding a lot of the um, of all the radio equipment we're going to have for demoing. We're going to probably have a um, a larger antenna array. We only had we only work a couple bands when we were there. We will have try to get as much stuff as we can. We'd like to get some more digital modes. Uh, we're trying to talk to satellite folks into coming out and showing what what you can talk through a satellite. And this is just a technician class. So we're we're really trying to improve on this and get more people involved. In it. And we're going to be able to show people talking maybe around the state, and then maybe even do some international uh, sure. uh, ham radio. Sure, you'll, all that. You'll sure. have different. Some, well, tell some of the bands that you'll be using. Uh, um, there. Well, the one band that's very popular with ham radio operators is 20 meters. That's a very wide open. It's it's worldwide communication. Um, we'll probably do some stuff on 15 and 10 because those are open, large area coverage, worldwide communication. Then we'll start getting up into the higher frequencies, 2 meters, uh, 440. Uh, those are the locals for the repeaters. Uh, yeah, it just depends on what we can bring in and what we can operate and the people that will be there. We'd like to get more into the HF digital, which is like PSK31. Some of the things where you can do keyboard to keyboard. We like a lot of that, a lot of that communication. And it depends on what the people are interested in. So come in, take a look, see what you want, and ask questions. That's what we're there for. Yeah, we'll, we'll have ARCA there. Of course, Craig, you'll be there with your booth. We put you right next to the ARCA booth. So okay. if uh, yep. people want to buy stuff, they'll be able to go to your booth at uh, RF Gear to Go. And we're going to throw out some of the websites again. We're going to have uh, the ARCA website is arca-az.org, and then the uh, Relay League uh, is the arrl.org. These are where you can go to find out about test locations, uh, studying, uh, how to t- find an exam session and find resources, find a, find a ham club in your neighborhood, mm-hmm. and really get started. Now, next week's show is going to be more about some of the specifics of how to use your ham. Craig's going to go chapter and verse on some of the products that are out there, the Baofeng and, and some of the others, the ASU and some of these others, uh, starting at you know, 60 65 bucks on up. You can really, uh, you know, you can really have quite a quite an array of things to go. So, guys, thanks for being on the show, Craig. We'll see you next week. Okay, thanks for having and, and uh, this is a lot of fun. And, and preppers, our tagline is prepping. It's not for doomsday; it's for every day. So, stay tuned and, and come back next week, and we'll talk more about how you can have a communication solution to be, have a grid down communication solution as a prepper. It's very, very important. Thank you. You've been listening to the Preparedness Radio Network, offering helpful and timely tips on preparing for natural and man-made disasters, timely and useful tips on gardening and homesteading. Until next time, remember, preparedness saves lives.
This is the Preparedness Radio Network.